Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Hi, this is Chris Waddell. Welcome to Living It. Today, I'm honored to be with Elena Nichols, who is a three-time Paralympic gold medalist, who is what they call a triple threat and actually probably a quadruple threat, really. So three-time Paralympian in three different sports. So wheelchair basketball, alpine skiing, which she actually went to the Paralympics two years after she started really in the sport, which is pretty impressive. We'll get to that. And then, and then uh, para canoe, and really you were more in a kayak, right? But then also yes. she's Correct. a surfer and has been a super successful surfer. And, and if you have not checked out what she's doing surfing, it is absolutely awesome. But also the president of the Women's Sports Foundation. And this is a, this is a huge honor, isn't it? To be the president of the Women's Sports Foundation. How did that happen and what's your role? Yeah, it is a a huge honor and what timing to be in a leadership position during a pandemic and at a really uncertain time for the foundation. It's it's an honor to be in this position. And as Billie Jean King, the founder of that organization says, uh, pressure is a privilege. And that's something that inspires me every day. You know, it's a it's a privilege to be under pressure and to perform under pressure. Um, I was involved, actually, I got involved with the Women's Sports Foundation in 2010 after the Vancouver Paralympics. As you mentioned, I medaled there uh, two years after the Beijing Games uh, for wheelchair basketball. And I was actually up for Sportswoman of the Year for the Women's Sports Foundation. And I got an uh, Facebook message from at the time the woman that was organizing their annual salute and she sent me this long message saying you know we'd love to have you we'll fly you out to New York City Uh, you'll be a part of this huge gala in lower Manhattan etc etc and I actually ignored the message I just didn't believe it I couldn't imagine that it was real And so after she messaged me a couple more times, I replied and surely I realized like, oh, wow, I'm really, you know, going to be honored at least as a nominee for Sportswoman of the Year. I was up against Lindsey Vaughn, who also had an amazing games in Vancouver. So needless to say, well, I was definitely in contention, but Lindsey won the award that year. But it was an honor to go. And that's so that's kind of how it started with the Women's Sports Foundation. I then served on a, on the board for about six years and this year was nominated as president and uh, have been serving. I will serve a one year term. What, what are your role? What's your role as the president? What do you do? Right. Um, so the president really is kind of in charge of the athlete advisory panel which is a really strong group of women who all care a lot about the organization. And we really kind of come together uh, quarterly to figure out what we can do on an individual basis to move the foundation forward. Uh, We talk a lot about advocacy. So whatever is currently going on, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and and our African-American athletes are a big focus for us right now. Um, Also the LGBTQ community. I don't think I said that right. Um, I think you did, actually. I think you got it all in there. I got it all. Um, So we advocate a lot for trans athletes right now. So um, there's a couple of laws in place that are 
uh, kind of meant to oppress trans athletes and we're fighting against those. Um, also, I serve on the executive committee for the foundation as the president. And a lot of what we're doing right now is trying to sort through what we need to do moving forward during this pandemic to continue to raise money for the foundation, which is, as you can imagine, pretty challenging. Challenging, uncertain, I mean, just such an uncertain future. It's, it's interesting right. that, like, as a disabled athlete, you often feel like you're on the outside looking in you're kind of trying to get involved with your NGBs, your national governing bodies, your, you know, and, 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 and it's almost, it almost feels like a really peripheral sport, but yet Mm -hmm. being part of the women's sports foundation, it's interesting. It was interesting for me to have seen a fair number of you who are involved with the women's sports foundation and you in a lot of ways go to the epicenter of women's sport where these are some of the most powerful people now the most powerful people in history and and you're part of a movement and it's really an inclusion movement right and and in some ways you're fighting that inclusion from from two fronts right from being right. a woman and from being an athlete with a disability how how did that empower you to be part of the women's sports foundation yeah so that's really uh, so insightful of you because a lot of people don't realize on one hand, you know, we're fighting for equality for women, but then in a subset, there's athletes with disabilities and female athletes with disabilities that need as much advocacy work, if not more. And one thing I love about the Women's Sports Foundation is it was never a question if women with disabilities were to be included. And Billie Jean has always advocated for all minorities and that includes disabilities and that's really what sets the women's sports foundation apart um i am the first uh women female president for the foundation that is in a wheelchair um amy mullins was a past president and a double leg amputee Mm -hmm. um and so she served and really kind of paved the way for me as well um but you know it's it's an interesting position for me to be in because you know so much of our focus and research and advocacy goes towards women of minority women of color and uh you know i it's a balance for me to to really help people understand you know women with disabilities are equally as deserving and they know that it's just about having a voice in that in that space so Serving as president right now has really been such an honor in that way to raise the awareness. And, you know, the Women's Sports Foundation has really answered the call. They're not, they're not shying away from all of the things they need to do to be as inclusive as possible for people with disabilities. So it's, they're making my job really easy. I'm not really fighting for it. I'm just, I make mention and they fix it. And it's been amazing to watch. Well, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like you get a bigger, a bigger mouthpiece. I mean, right. it's you, you are part of a much bigger movement than just you fighting for yourself, fighting for athletes with disabilities, fighting for women with disabilities. <clears throat> and just to take a quick step back, some of the past presidents, you met, mentioned Amy Mullins, but the original president was Donna DiVarona. I, I saw her, I actually presented her with the, uh, with the Torch Award the Olympic Torch Award for Lifetime Achievement this past year. I mean, she is one of, she, she's a guiding light Amazing. and somebody who, who just blazed so many trails and made it so much easier for, for women, for athletes, 
for for people to to actually have a voice in in the future but you look at some of the others i mean you you've got like julie fowdy nancy lieberman i mean it's it's an amazing group of people and i'm only mentioning Layla Ali. yeah Layla Ali. Right. yeah some fairly yeah. recognizable <laughs> names here you know yeah jessica mendoza elena myers uh, taylor just came off uh but but it's it's a it's an amazing thing how how do you approach change uh you know creating this change affecting a change has it changed from how you did it as an individual to how you're trying to do it now having the platform as the president in this time it's really about collaboration so like i mentioned i i i bring uh equality issue to the surface and there's this whole team of staff uh, at the Women's Sports Foundation that are ready and willing to take on the challenge. So, you know, we collaborate and that's really what gets the job done. And I'm just so lucky to have the support I do right now. And, you know, it's so interesting. We were out in DC in February before the pandemic um, for National Girls and Women in Sports Day. And we do that every year. It's a national holiday. We go up to Capitol Hill and we talk with uh, the Congress men and women about what we're doing with the Women's Sports Foundation, raise awareness for certain what certain states are doing and some states that aren't um, cooperating. And during our visit, we actually needed to move from the Senate um, to a different building and there was an elevator out of order. And in the process, the, the staff that was with me at the time, they realized how, you know, this will be the anniversary of the ADA coming up July 26th, um, 30th anniversary of the ADA, I think, unless we're so going on So it's 1990, 40. yeah, so it's the 30th right, anniversary. 30th. Right. 30th anniversary. So I'm at the birthplace of this law where it <laughs> was actually birthed into existence and i'm having accessibility issues in the women's sports foundation you know they they were they had to become aware of that and and they realized the struggle even just on a basic level of physical access to buildings and you know that doesn't even involve you know access to sports and so i think just being in this position right now has raised a lot of awareness but then there are you know certain things that we're tackling even within our foundation you know some some of the access and things during our annual salute haven't really been um you know up to par as far as accessibility is concerned so um we're working just to just to tighten those things up and then you know, on top of that, one of my main in initiatives on top of female athletes with disabilities having more access is um, the Native American community and um, really reaching out to those girls that have so much potential but don't really get to realize that because of resources and access and awareness. Well, it's, I mean, you mentioned the Americans with Disabilities Act and, and Title IX is a huge part of the Women's Sports Foundation as well, which is supposed to provide equal access to female athletes as, as male athletes. But the thing is, you get, you get those things as legislation and you think, okay, well, everything's done. Like we're, we're all set. We've done it. And, and, and you're fighting that battle on the Title IX side too, where 
a lot of a lot of colleges don't even don't even necessarily know what they need to do or who their right. person is who is conducting this and and so that's that's the challenge and it's certainly the challenge that we're seeing with with Black Lives Matter as well we think oh well civil rights that was that was back right. in the 60s so everything's fine right and and the answer is that yeah. everything everything is not fine and and as you mentioned being visible is is a huge part of it but but trying to trying to affect a greater change is it is an ongoing challenge right. that that you're going through and and i'd imagine having been an athlete that's part of that that's that prepared you for it didn't it did it prepare you for that challenge of fighting that challenge and a challenge you never thought you'd actually yeah. fight probably you know yeah i it did i mean a lot of what we learn as athletes is is growing stronger and setting small goals and achieving them leads to big goals and achieving those. And, you know, with the movement that title nine created, it's still a process that you have to go through and it's systemic. I mean, like you mentioned, we have to make sure it's being enforced at a collegiate level, you know, in schools, elementary schools, even, you know, and so, yeah, I think being an athlete has, prepared me to know that if you, I, I think every time we were told no, that's an opportunity to move forward. It's not a door closed. It's okay. Let's figure out how we need to move forward outside of that. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I think, I think athletes are resilient and you know, you get knocked down, you get back up. So I think that's really one of the things that is encouraging for me in a leadership position, just knowing, there's, there's so much to do that we can do. We're not going to, we're not going to be told no and then stop. That's not part of our nature as athletes. Right. Exactly. And, and feeling a, feeling a sense of ownership and responsibility to your sport and the future of your sport as well. And I, I think in some ways I've always thought that sort of being a Paralympic athlete was a bit of a gift because Mm -hmm. we really had to have ownership of our sport or else it wouldn't get done i mean not to not to denigrate the ipc or any of any of those people but at the same time it, it's not established like football basketball baseball these kinds of things where you just kind of come in and and you're part of the churn you're in you're out for us it's like we we really have to individually take a responsibility to move things forward and absolutely and, and sometimes and i'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus but when alpine skiing was governed by the ussa they didn't have our best interests in mind and they weren't trying to move us forward as a community of athletes they were more or less managing our money and so it was that was really my first experience with okay we're we're really responsible for advocating for ourselves and if we want equal access to the same resources, we're going to have to ask for it. It's not going to be handed to us. Like you said, with football or basketball, something that's well-established, we, we have to fight for what we deserve. And I think that's really what sets Paralympians apart is we've had to fight on a lot of levels for what we deserve. What you deserve and to try to make a living doing it. You don't, you don't come right. into the whole thing and just sign a contract and say, okay, that's great. This is right. what I'm going to make moving forward. You have to, you're making your money through sponsorship and grants and I know mm-hmm. a variety of, of other things. Can we step back just a little bit to go back to your, to your athletic career? I know we've kind of moved it in front, but the inclusion thing I think is just so important right now, just because 
because we're we're starting to become a little bit more aware of the challenges that other people have when we when we have neglected them but but you wanted to be an olympic softball player that was mm-hmm. part of your goal as as a kid i mean cuz you really were a kid back then and, and and that changed with a snowboarding accident when when did you decide that you were going to go back into sport? So it was, so when I, my story is so different from the times that are kind of people are experiencing now because so much has changed with social media and the internet and, and the exchange of information. But I actually broke my back before any social media. I broke my back in 2000. So you know, I had this dream of, you know, going to college on a softball scholarship. I wanted to play on the Olympic team one day. And that was kind of my path out of my small town. um, And really, truly what I had my heart set on. And so when I broke my back at 17, I was out backcountry snowboarding, um, over rotated a backflip and um, landed on a rock that was underneath the snow, uh, became paralyzed after breaking my back in three places. And you know, I wake up in the ICU and I'm, you know, I hadn't met somebody in a wheelchair. I had no idea what paralysis was. I, you know, I, I had a hard talk with a doctor about never walking again. I didn't believe him for a second. I thought for, for sure he didn't know who I was. And of course I would overcome this. Um, and that didn't happen because a spinal cord injury is very different from breaking a bone or even from heart tissue or brain tissue or lung tissue, it doesn't regenerate. And so it actually took me about two years after my injury to kind of settle into um, being a person with a disability and and really kind of accept and own it. And it was right at that moment, kind of at my lowest moment, I was at college, um, didn't go off to college like I had dreamt of to play softball. Um, I was kind of moping around school, just kind of going through the motions. And I took a shortcut through an auxiliary gym at the University of New Mexico. And I just happened upon a whole group of people playing wheelchair basketball. And so you can imagine like my, it was a jaw dropping moment of like, wait, time out. There's, I've never seen anybody my age in a wheelchair, let alone 10 of them on a court in these crazy looking wheelchairs, like smashing into each other, falling over, you know, shooting stationary seated three point shots and making them. And I had heard about adaptive sports before my injury, but I didn't even give it a second thought because, you know, I was a, I was a fast pitch softball player. I was prideful and I knew adaptive sports couldn't, couldn't challenge me in the way that I used to be as an athlete. And that day and that moment when I saw wheelchair basketball being played, I I quickly had to, you know, change my mind. I had to question everything I had thought prior um, about adaptive sports and, um, you know, it's I was like really faded lucky. in some ways, isn't it? It's, it's like faded that you, you went through there and went, ah, oh, like who, who's, yeah. who's telling me that I'm supposed to see this? <laughs> exactly. I, it was, it was very, uh, serendipitous. And that day, actually, I, um, was approached by the only female athlete that was playing with those 10 other athletes, nine other athletes. Um, one of the biggest women, strongest, tallest, like, built women that I've ever even seen to this day in a wheelchair. Her name is Lorraine Gonzalez. She approached me. She's a single leg amputee. 
um, she came over to me and just asked me my name and what, what I do and asked me if I played any adaptive sports. And I said, I'd never seen him before. And that day she got me into a basketball chair and had me try, you know, basic wheelchair basketball skills. And I used to play basketball as a, as a younger athlete. I played about nine years of it in elementary, junior high and high school. And, um, it was so humbling. I sat in this chair. I tried to bounce the ball. I immediately knocked it off of my wheel. You know, I look up at the basket. It's like a mile away. And, you know, it, it was really a bittersweet moment because I, I really see it as this kind of transition where on one hand, it's not the same as it used to be and it never will be. But on the other hand, there were all these other athletes that were doing the best that they could with what they had. And I didn't have an excuse anymore. I just, I saw it and I couldn't unsee it. And in front of me was a challenge. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to be faster and I wanted to shoot farther and I wanted to be better than the other athletes. Like I'd always done, you know, and um, it took a, a couple of practices for me to really uh, commit. But then after I, I really sank my teeth into it, I knew I wanted to continue playing and um, I learned about a program at the University of Arizona that had an all women's team and I ended up actually moving out there on a whim. I lived on a couch for nine months and played wheelchair basketball and I ended up at transferring to the University of Arizona and um, you know it was one of the best risk taking experiences I've had. I, I oftentimes um, I, I credit my risk taking you know forgetting me as far as it has as in my athletic career, but it's also the reason I'm in a wheelchair. So it's like this very delicate balance of risk taking, but yeah. yeah, it really is. So, um, you know, once I moved out to Arizona, it really opened up doors for me and I learned about the Paralympics and the possibility of playing on the Paralympic team. It's, and this actually dragged you out of a depression too, right? Where, I mean, you'd yeah. considered suicide, you'd consider, you know, where your life isn't worth living. And then, then it's filled by competition again. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the positive byproducts of sport that you don't realize, I mean, you get your heart rate going and those endorphins in your brain start firing and you're sweating. And all of a sudden I started investing in my education. I didn't even want to go to class before. And I had just kind of slowly but surely built this confidence. It was almost as if I set those small goals in wheelchair basketball. I wanted to dribble up and down the court. It kind of sub, like subsequently set goals in my, in my life. Uh, I'm going to go to class. And I, you know, I built this kind of new confidence. I used to be so extroverted. I was really popular in high school. I played all these sports and loved all my friends and everything. And then once I broke my back, I just felt so misunderstood. I mean, people just looked at me and they turned away right away. And they didn't know that even five months prior, I was an able-bodied person just like them. And it was really hard going to college and just feeling like nobody really understood the struggle I was experiencing. And you're right, I was, I, I sank really low into that hole. I didn't have any reason to live. I didn't want to live. And wheelchair basketball was, was that light that came into my life and that really motivated me to get out of bed. I look forward to those. They were just community practices. It was every Wednesday, but that kept me going through the week. And then, you know, once I learned about the Paralympics, I had another goal and that was 
that was something I couldn't stop thinking about. I was eating and breathing and sleeping wheelchair basketball because I wanted to go to Beijing. And, you know, in a Cinderella story kind of way, we, eight years after my injury, I broke my back in 2000. I was at the 2008 Paralympic Games in Beijing. We went into that tournament undefeated and we sat there after that gold medal match and the buzzer sounded crying our eyes out on the podium receiving a gold medal and that was an unreal moment in my life hold on now you compressed a fair amount of time yeah. <laughs> I did. right there you There's just you just compressed it yeah, yeah exactly i mean it was just, it was just sort of eight years and it you know i saw this practice and then all of a sudden i was on the getting my gold medal put around my neck kind of thing yeah <laughs> can you first describe what is a wheelchair basketball chair look like? Why is it different? Right. Yeah. So it's kind of the equivalent of putting on a pair of basketball shoes. They're, they have a much higher performance than an everyday chair. So they have slanted wheels, uh, usually about 20 degrees. Um, so you're, you're really agile. You can spin on a dime. Also, and that helps you turn more quickly in, and keeps yeah, you from tipping exactly. over when you turn more quickly. Okay. Yeah. And then you also strap in to the, so you strap your body in with these, uh, they're modified snowboard straps, so they're click straps. And then also there's two wheels on the back of a basketball chair, so you can actually kind of heave your body backwards to get some momentum to throw the ball into the hoop, and those two wheels will keep you from falling backwards. And also, I mean, the, the sport is literally kind of violent. Like, it's such a cool thing to see, and if, if any of the listeners haven't seen it, you got to look it up. It's so, it's so beautiful, this dance that people in wheelchairs are doing both on offense and defense and how coordinated you have to be to play the game. And uh, the chairs actually make all the difference. They're so athletic. And really the first time I got into that chair that day at the University of New Mexico, I strapped in and I pushed as hard as I could. And I, I felt like I was running for the first time since my accident. And I was sweating and it was just, I felt free again. And that, I think that's really the magic of what happens for athletes with disabilities that get back into sports is the equipment really makes the difference. It does. And it's funny that you're talking about that because when you were talking earlier, you're talking about the people, like the people didn't know that five months prior, you'd been an able-bodied athlete. Like they didn't know who you were, which really is part of the problem at some point, right? That this is who I was. And it's like, okay, well, who are you now? But it also sounds like when you got into the, into the sport, that it wasn't so much convincing other people of who you were, but you had to start with yourself. And, right. can, and then you're projecting something. Is that the way that it worked? Because that's, that's exactly the way it right. sounded. Yeah, that was exactly right. I, I really, I think the, the lowest point after my injury was so associated with a loss of identity. I was so, all of my eggs were in that athletic basket. I was, uh, my worth, I was very performance-based, you know, um, I, identified as an athlete. And then when that got taken away from me, I didn't know who I was. And I'm not saying that that's all that I was, but that was certainly something that was, I was very confident about. I was very prideful about who I was as an athlete because I was, I was proven, right? I did the work. I accomplished the goals. And after my injury, I didn't have that outlet to 
to really prove to myself that I was worthy and that I was strong and athletic and all of those things. And I didn't have an outlet for, for any of it. And I mean, really what's happening for adaptive athletes, at least for myself is, you know, you get to prove to yourself that you are strong enough and that you, you, you prove to yourself what you're made of. And that's all that really matters. It doesn't, to your point, it doesn't matter what other people are seeing. It's what you know to be true about yourself. Yeah. It's kind of a funny thing that sometimes I think, I think sometimes it's like that we have to get over how we see ourselves. Then we have to get over what we think, what we, how other people see us. And then the third part is that we sometimes have to get over how we think other people see us and, right. and not necessarily giving them credit, but when you have action, when you have the ability to, to, to pour yourself into something, a lot of the other stuff doesn't really matter. Right. So when did you decide that you wanted to go to Beijing in 2008? How was, did that work? How did it, yeah, what's the progression? You know, I have it, you on the gold also, medal thing, but what happened before that? Right. <laughs> I did blow over a lot of pretty important details. Well, I was actually, so I mentioned I'd played on this community team at the University of Arizona, or I'm sorry, at the University of New Mexico. It was just a community team. We didn't, um, didn't have any, you know, real structure to us. So it's like but a pickup game a, kind of thing. Right. Pickup game, pickup ball. And I was at a juniors tournament we were hosting at UNM when I met another woman there. She approached me. Her name is Jen Howitt, legend in wheelchair basketball. She approached me and, and told me I had, you know, a lot of athletic ability and that I could actually play for the Paralympic team one day. And that was literally the first time I'd ever heard the word Paralympic. And she taught me that the Paralympics are the games for people with disabilities, physical disabilities that happen two weeks after the Olympic games. And it's like the second largest sporting event in the world. And, you know, it's, it's parallel to the Olympic games. And when she told me about that and she kind of walked me through the process, you know, you have to play for a collegiate team, probably. You didn't have to at the time, but that's really the path you need to take. And there's a program at the University of Arizona that's all women. So at the time, there were only four women's wheelchair basketball teams that were associated with universities. And those tended to be the most structured programs. There were community programs as well, but um, I was really looking for an elite program. And so the University of Arizona was one, the University of Wisconsin Whitewater, the University of Texas Arlington, and the University of Illinois all had all women's programs. And so the University of Arizona made the most sense for me. It was closest to New Mexico at the time. And um, like I said, I, I, I hadn't even driven a car. I was two years post-injury. And on a whim, I said, I'm just going to transfer to I'm going to move to Tucson. I had to do a year at the community college to get into the University of Arizona. I had bought a car that week and drove to Arizona. The girls that I had met said I could stay at their house. I had no plan. And I literally, I lived on a futon for nine months. It was awesome and not awesome at the same time because we would play wheelchair basketball. Um, we would practice and then we'd all go home and everybody would go into their respective rooms and then I would be on the futon like you know if practice got heated or whatever I didn't have a door to shut and uh <laughs> so that was you know it was it was it was awesome um because 
really what happened for me is that's when I became an athlete again. What year that is was this? in 2000, 2003. So 2003. I did two, okay. two years. So the first at happened in 2002 at, in New Mexico, you saw basketball and then 2003 mm-hmm. you're in Arizona and okay. Yep. The crazy thing about my first week of wheelchair basketball, our coach didn't let us touch a ball. So in wheelchair basketball, one of the most effective things as a successful team is chair skills. And that's really just conditioning. So you have to figure out how to maneuver this basketball chair with, you know, nine other athletes on the court. And it really takes a lot of disciplined work as far as like your hand movements, explosive, you know, pushing. And so I remember our first week of wheelchair basketball, we had practice every day. I had blisters covering every finger on my hand and on the palms of my hand. I actually had like a sprained wrist without ever impacting it. And I remember I was in the shower and these blisters stung so bad. I got shampoo in them. And I remember I was crying, but like happy tears because as an athlete, I wanted that. I wanted to feel that soreness. I wanted to feel the pain. And I, would, I just wanted to feel again. I wanted to feel alive. And that's what happened for me that first week of basketball. I mean, it was terrible, but it was awesome at the same time. So you're crying tears of joy when effectively you've just been running laps and suicides, really, effectively. Suicide sprints, <laughs> yes, all of it. And, you know, I just... I think what happened for me too, as I became disabled, I, I suddenly felt like everybody was tiptoeing around me and I was an aggressive softball player. I mean, I was diving for balls. I wasn't even close to, I would take every opportunity I could to slide into home plate face first. Like that was just my vibe. And so once I got back into sports and into this basketball chair, I was just so aggressive and I wanted to just feel that that feeling of like, it's not pain, but it's, you just feel alive when you're sore, you're using your body, your, your, your throat hurts, you're breathing so hard. I missed that. And, and in a lot of ways, it's probably also the ability to take pride in your body again. Right. Yeah. I mean, the accident took a lot away, right? Mm -hmm. It did. And, you know, I, I had to kind of prove to myself what it could do and but I was also proving it to a lot of other people like nobody knew anything about adaptive sports in my world my parents my sisters so I was kind of I was teaching everybody including myself what was possible that is that that, and that's often the path that people are going right that you're the only one Mm -hmm. in your community and so you become an educator you become an advocate without really Mm -hmm intending to but nobody else knows so yeah how did the path go so did you so you ended up getting into the university of arizona mm-hmm. when did that happen and then you started because you're already playing on the team before you were actually a student right yeah so wheelchair basketball is not an ncaa sponsored sport um so it's not a varsity sport but it's held to those standards as far as practice time is concerned and the amount of work that is expected of you as an athlete. So I did one year at that community college in Tucson, and then I was able to get the math credits and an extra language credit during that time to get into the University of Arizona. I also needed to to establish residency to then pay in-state tuition. 
So I got into Arizona in 2004, and then I graduated from uh, the University of Arizona in 2006. And the year that I got, um, that I was set to graduate, we had a tournament at the University of Alabama. And I'll never forget the coach, uh, Brent Harden, who is still the head director of the program at uh, Alabama. I was um, in there at the time they had this tiny little like it was a closet that we kept all the basketball chairs in. And I was in that closet um, fixing straps or whatever on my basketball chair. And he just kind of casually mentioned, he's like, you know, it'd be really great to have you as a part of our program. Would you want to do a master's degree and come here to school? And it was just such a casual conversation and I kind of blew him off. And um, there's getting to be a theme here. I don't know if you noticed that. You yeah, blew off the women's like, sports fund. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, he ended up following up with me and, um, you know, I, I gave it some serious thought and, you know, the last thing I ever thought is I would move to Alabama of all places. I just never imagined it. And, um, I took the GRE and I got in and moved out to Tuscaloosa after I graduated from Arizona and it turned out to be such a perfect uh, environment for me uh, to, to do my master's degree, but to also train for Beijing, which was like my ultimate goal. Um, I ended up thinking to myself, I'd be a fool to turn down a, a full ride scholarship to do a master's degree. And that's really what, what <laughs> was the deciding factor. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I, I really fell in love with Tuscaloosa. I made some of the best friends of my life. But the year that I graduated with my master's was the most epic summer. I graduated in May and then we headed off to Beijing in September. And as I've already mentioned, we won the gold there. And it was just like the most amazing, you know, summer of my life. I finished school altogether and then we won a gold medal. And it just could, didn't get any better than that for me. Actually, it did, but. Well, it didn't get any better than that. And so you decided after having been, having grown up in New Mexico, uh, gone to school in Arizona, then got your master's in Alabama, that you wanted to go to often the coldest place in the country. It to, really is. You lived in Fraser, Colorado, didn't you? I mean, that's, that's yep. often on the Today Show, like this is the coldest place in the country right now. Fraser Valley. What made you, I mean, I, I'm assuming that, that having been a snowboarder was, mm -hmm. was part of what made you want to ski, but, and it, you'd skied some, right? You'd skied some before you yeah. did this. You didn't do it sort of sight unseen, but you right. probably really didn't know much of what you were doing, but you decided really you wanted to go. Yeah. So I actually, uh, I heard about this program, like you mentioned, uh, in Winter Park, Colorado called the National Sports Center for the Disabled while I was training for Beijing. So I was already kind of scheming. And uh, <laughs> I ended up visiting the head coach of that program, Eric Peterson, um, before we left to Beijing. And it's a pretty cool story because he loves to eat his words. I, I sat down with him at lunch um, since I was actually training in Denver at the time. And I visited him, we sat down for lunch and I told him what I wanted to do. And that was to, you know, go off to Beijing with the small amount of money that we win with a gold medal. This was me just manifesting at the time. Um, 
I wanted to get, take that money and put it into his program, train for Alpine skiing uh, for the following two years, and then go to, to the Vancouver games in 2010, which is very tight turnaround, but also, uh, you know, it's just really a lofty goal. And I understand that. And, and Eric also was very realistic with me. And he said, you know, you should probably just maybe focus on the 2014 games in Sochi. And why don't we just cross that bridge when we come to it kind of thing. And I just kind of remember thinking, okay, whatever, you know, I hear you, but I also am still going to hang on to my goal of going to 2010. And, um, it's it kind of played out exactly like I planned it. Um, you know, we went off to Beijing, we won that gold and I moved from Tuscaloosa, Alabama to, like you said, the coldest place in the country, um, with $5,000 in my pocket. It wasn't a lot. I was a broke college student. Um, at the time we didn't get equal pay for our medals and, um, 5,000 that's missing a couple zeros compared to the Olympians. And, uh, for one season of training at the Winter Park program, it's about $20,000. So that was enough to get me started, but I actually had some really great friends from my hometown throw me a couple of fundraisers that saw me through the first season. Um, and honestly, Chris, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. A, because I, you know, we had just won this gold medal. I, I, I really felt like I was, getting closer to mastering a sport when I transitioned into alpine skiing and had to relearn everything. And like you mentioned, I had skied a couple of times, a handful of times before, um, like during Christmas break while I was at Arizona and Alabama. But when I got into the program at, um, in Winter Park, uh, the head coach, Eric, he's an able-bodied guy and bless his heart. He doesn't really know how hard it is to be a person in a wheelchair pushing through the snow, but he required us to carry our own monoskis. And at the time I had a, what's called a Kevin Bramble design, a 40 pound monster machine that he required me to carry through the snow. Um, not to mention you had to bring your own ski, right? So you, he basically really kind of pushed me out of the nest. You know, he wasn't coddling me in any way. And my first day as a skier, we were early season training at Copper. And he said, all right, you got your monoski here. You got your ski. Take a couple warm-up laps and then meet me at the top of the mountain. And he didn't really know, like, I hadn't skied by myself at that time. I had not <laughs> skied independently. And it was kind of a disaster of a day. I mean, I fell off the lift like seven times and, um, and the bucket that I had at the time was up into my armpits and like everything was just not dialed. So on top of learning how to ski, I also didn't have my equipment kind of dialed in and it was just really hard. And that was kind of really humbling after, you know, coming off of such a high after all the work and, uh, you know, success we had in wheelchair basketball, but um, I think to Eric's credit, he was, I needed to be pushed out of the nest and I grew a lot because of it. What made you say then, what made you believe that you could be ready for 2010 when you were saying this to Eric, how could you possibly, how could that come out of your mouth? What, what's the thought process there? Or was there not one? Yeah, that, yeah that's a good point. Um, 
You know, I, I think because of my experience with wheelchair basketball, I really did start looking at all the things that I could do. You know, it, it was like this real transition I made mentally from focusing on what I'd lost and what I couldn't do anymore to like what I could do. And I think I just kind of got carried away with it a little bit. You know, I, I, I knew I could play on a Paralympic team and I knew that I could accomplish this goal of, of winning a gold medal. And, you know, certainly there's some fortune that goes into that, but I just, I just set a lofty goal because I thought that it could, it could happen. And, you know, to be honest, if I hadn't thought it could happen, it wouldn't have, it was, it was so lofty. I had to dream big before that could ever have happened. And, you know, I think there is some fortune that went into that as well. Um, in ski racing, of course, there's a certain percentage of just pure luck that happens. If the wind blows in your direction, that's going to help you win a race. But um, I just, I did have a, a certain amount of confidence after my experiences in wheelchair basketball that I guess made me believe I could do it. It's kind of like you've seen the worst in some ways that it's like, hey, I've seen right. the worst. I, I've survived it. Like, I'm not going to be denied now. And and so how, so how did you go from falling off the chairlift to, to being, to effectively being selected for the games in 2010? Yeah, you know, I, it was, there was some naivete that went into it because everything had to fall into place exactly as it did for me to make the team. And my first season ski racing, I ended up winning the national title in downhill and super G up in Panorama. Um, actually, Kimberly, I'm sorry, Kimberly, Canada. And uh, I had to win those races in order to get the points to be <laughs> in contention to, to make the Paralympic team the following year. But I didn't know that. In the start gate for those downhill and the super G race, I didn't know that. I wasn't thinking that far ahead. I didn't understand the point system in alpine skiing, really. So it wasn't, it wasn't really, I can't take full credit for it. All I did was ski really fast. <laughs> and that's really what set me up. So I win those races. And then I did make the developmental team for the Paralympics um, the year of 2010. So I was on the D team but that put me in a position to train with the Paralympic team at Mount Hood that summer. And then um, really put me in a position to financially be able to make it to the games in 2010 as well. So um, how is that? What, what does that mean financially? Like they were well, paying for some of your travel and your, and your training yes. or, okay. Yeah. Um, I was still paying for my equipment and honestly, when I was, at the 2010 games, I skied on like three different ski brands because <laughs> I wasn't, I had no sponsors. I, I more or less scraped by to get there. Right. Um, and then, you know, I, I went and skied on my first world cup races over in Austria that season in 2010 prior to the games and uh, just was overwhelmed with what world competition looks like. I had seen domestic competition in the US, but I showed up in Austria and you know, these women are are growing up skiing on like clear see-through blue ice. <laughs> and I've grown up 
as a ski racer on Colorado hero snow. And uh, I, I was very humbled and I didn't do that well in my world cups. And my first season, I wasn't in uh, any position to win a globe or anything like that, but um, it did sort of prepare me for the world competition that would be the Paralympics that later that year. Um, but still really, Chris, to be honest, I was developmental in every way and wasn't favored to win anything at those games. And um, I don't always share this story, but in 2009, my brother was murdered when we were both living in uh, Denver, Colorado. And, um, you know, in the same way I was set back by my spinal cord injury, my losing my brother really set me back in a way that I had to, in a lot of the same ways, really dig equally as deep to kind of crawl out of a hole of depression. And, um, he was a really big fan of mine and there was no denying, even if I wanted to, I couldn't deny the fact that he would have wanted me to keep going and to keep competing. It was not a question. And so I knew I had to keep going and um, I skied with him as my inspiration when I got to the games and um, I, I didn't have anything to lose because I had lost it. I had lost it all, you know, I lost my brother and I and you didn't really like have any expectations have any, as well, right? I didn't have any expectations. I, mean, like, I had no sponsors. Nobody expected you, you to know? win, none of this stuff. No. But, wow. So it's, it, in some ways, it's, it's, it's almost like a transformation, right? It's kind of like, in some ways, we, mm -hmm. we compete for ourselves, but, but it was also, it seemed like you were competing for him and, and holding yourself mm -hmm. to a much higher standard than it might have been yes. if it was just you. Is that how it happened or? It, it, it wouldn't have, I can't imagine not having him as my motivation during that time because I, I skied like I was inspired by something. And it, I think it transcended ski racing. Like it, it, it was the biggest competition of my life really because in an individual sport, it's all on you. It's every mistake. Right. or every win I mean there's no denying who made that mistake and in wheelchair basketball there's 11 other women on the court that all carry the burden or the success with you and I really had my brother as my inspiration and I don't know it was like I was on another level of of experiencing those games and I did feel inspired by him and um, the first race of the games, everything had gotten switched up because of the weather in Vancouver. And we usually ski the downhill first and then Super G, uh, move into the tech events from there with GS Slalom and the Super Combined. But the weather in Vancouver, there was fog and rain and everything else. So the downhill got moved. We skied the Giant Slalom first. And you actually, uh, you called the... The, the races at these games with Sarah Will. And um, I don't know that anybody really knew what was going on with me on a personal level, as far as my brother was concerned. But that first race, I wasn't, I wasn't a tech skier. It wasn't really something I was very great at, but. You were better I, at going fast, going straight, I was going fast. Much better at going fast. And 
so I found myself up by a second going into the second run of the giant slalom, um, which I could have never imagined would have happened because the Austrian skier, the German skier, even some of my U.S. ski team teammates were much better at giant slalom, but they had all had bobbles or one of them fell. And I ended up winning the first run of the giant slalom, which I couldn't believe. So I'm sitting at the top of this race course, looking a gold medal in the face. It's pouring rain. And at this point in my grieving about my brother, I, I thought that everything was kosher. Like I, you know, you cry so much when you lose somebody and grief is such a process. I thought I was in a pretty good place, but for some reason, right before that second run, I completely lost it emotionally for no apparent reason. It was like inconvenient that I was crying at that time. Inconvenience, a bit of an understatement, right? Yes. It was like, not now. And (laughs) catastrophic is probably more, yeah. A catastrophic experience. It was not the right time or place for me to be thinking about my brother. And I had to just completely let go of control of whatever was going to happen because I was out of control of my emotions. And I remember sitting in the start gate, you know, the seconds are counting down. I look up at the sky. I prayed to my brother and I asked him to just do it for me. (laughs) Like, you know, he couldn't do it for me. I was like, you got to do this for me. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Really. I let go of everything. And, and really, I think that helped me in a lot of ways because I was so in the zone. I had nothing going on in my head. I skied that race. I looked up at the Jumbotron. My name's on the top. And I had just won my first gold of the Winter Games. I became the first female American to win gold in the Summer and Winter Games. And none of that even processed. It was my brother was like spiritually undeniably there in that moment. And I, you know this, you saw it. I lost it. I mean, it was a spiritual cry that was outside of my body. And it was because my brother was a part of that experience with me. You're talking about the the feeling of completely letting go, which is which is the objective of every athlete, isn't it? To like right. completely let go and be be in that moment, but but you were swept into an entirely different moment, into this moment of into this spiritual moment that you the that you understand so profoundly, but at the same time, don't really understand because you've never done it before or anything. And, and so it's just, it's, it's way more powerful than you is what it sounded like. And it was, and it was, it looked like in the finish, obviously it looked so cathartic that, that it was, that, I mean, you were, you, you were sobbing. I mean, just sobbing i mean just out of control sobbing and i don't think that people recognize that until until they lose someone that's close to them that that you can cry on such a primal level that it almost doesn't feel like it's coming from you you know that it's just it's nothing that you could even relate to anything that you'd experienced before and and i think that that ultimately was uh looking at that it was it was one of the one of the most amazing moments that I have seen in sport, you know, in Paralympic sports, certainly, but in sport in general, because, because it's, it is the human side of, of what we do, you know, and, and, and I think you came across that way. So you stayed 
in the sport. I mean, for, for basketball, you were, you were one and done. You got your gold medal and you left and you went to Winter Park and you stayed in through Sochi in 2014, which was a bit more of an adventure. In, in a lot of ways, you were more prepared for Sochi, but it seems like it was more challenging. Yes yeah well actually uh not to correct you but i i did end up going to one more games for wheelchair basketball i did london in 2000 oh you did okay i'm sorry yeah okay. yeah no that's okay i i after vancouver i i got my basketball chair out of storage and and went back at it um and those games were such a different experience in in beijing i was very much a role player i was defense minded i i was a workhorse and then going most likely to London, foul out kind of thing totally <laughs> totally i was pretty aggressive for sure and and i didn't i didn't uh contribute very much offensively i did finish my layups and whenever i was expected to shoot but um it was really we focused a lot on defense when we won that gold in beijing and we just full court pressed the germans and that's really what put us in a position to win. Um, but in London, I was more of a, a role player, I um, or a leader really. And I, I was so much more experienced and we had retired some of our, our veteran athletes. So we were down, but we were still really strong. Um, and we had a different coaching staff, which makes a huge difference, but a long story short about the London games, we actually ended up playing out the tournament in the same way that we did in Beijing. We met the Australians in the semifinal. We were planning to play the Germans in the final, but in the semi, we had this just cat fight of a game. We, we had like 24 turnovers. It was just a mess, but we ended up losing the semifinal game on a bad call from a ref. And you have to look it up. You have to know it. It's called Paralympic Mistake on YouTube. We really wanted it to make the ESPN not top 10, but it didn't. Um, and it was actually my shot that didn't get counted that would have put us into the gold medal game. And uh, that was such an experience having a loss that was just so devastating that we had no control over. And uh, you know, after a lot of reflection, I, it took a lot of time. I didn't talk about it for a long time, but we, we went on to play the, the Dutch in the bronze medal match. We never had lost to the Dutch up until that point, but we lost by like 24 points. Our spirits were crushed. It was a disaster. But um, I, I did come around after a while to consider that loss equally as important in my athletic career as, as my gold medal moments. Um, mostly because the process leading up to that was so uh, meaningful and valuable to me and the team that we had and the, and the teammates that I shared those moments with all mattered so much more to me than some of the experiences I had in Beijing. So, you know, it really taught me about the process and not the end result. Um, and I think that's equally as valuable. Um, but hard lesson to you know, learn as an athlete though, right? Sometimes it's, yes. it's, it's, a, it's one of those ones you think, okay, this is the one I'm supposed to learn, but, uh, but yeah, it's crushing. 
it's crushing. So, um, I did go back to skiing, uh, was juggling two sports at the same time, which proved to be really difficult, um, more so on a mental level than on a physical level. I think they really complemented themselves on a physical level. I was just always training. Um, but mentally I was finding myself as a ski racer, trying not to get injured for basketball. Mm -hmm. And that's when you are most likely to get injured when you're trying not to. (laughs) So, you know, that was like a, a huge mental experience for me to really let go and trust in my, in my, uh, preparation for skiing. Um, turns out I did get injured in the worst way (laughs) when I was, uh, training for Sochi. So we had already gotten through London, so I wasn't worried about my shoulders or anything for basketball, but I was training up at Mount Hood for the Sochi games in 2013, in June of 2013, when I uh, accidentally caught an edge and I skied into a boulder, um, probably upwards of 35 miles per hour, maybe 40, um, hit feet first and broke my ankles, but then I caught my right elbow on the rock and dislocated my shoulder backwards. And it was out of place for two hours, completely destroyed everything in my right shoulder. had to have a full shoulder reconstruction surgery, rehab and everything, um, all that summer at the Olympic Training Center. I did get back on snow in November, was just not able to do all of those small disciplinary things that you need to do as a ski racer, you know, side slipping and all that preseason stuff that prepares you really to, to perform. And so I did show up to Sochi kind of behind the ball a little bit. Um, I really wanted to like equal or, or better my medal count from Vancouver. I had pretty high hopes and uh, I was just kind of behind where I wanted to be. And um, you know, those Sochi games were pretty rowdy. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty rowdy. It was, it was a nasty course and nasty conditions. I mean, it was, you were in March in a place that had palm trees so it was getting warm. They were putting a lot of chemicals on the snow, which makes it effectively, it's like, it's like you know, twice frozen ice cream kind of thing where it just really gets nasty and, and yeah, and just peels off on Bumpy. you. And mm-hmm. yeah, and, and it was super, super steep and a ton of air in the, in the speed events. And yeah, one of those, you wanna be on top of your game and you weren't yeah. quite on top of your game as you're approaching Sochi. Yes, exactly. So a lot of things kind of came into play. Um, the downhill didn't go as planned, but um, it didn't turn out as bad as it could have. So I, I ended up sliding out on my bucket on, I think it was the eighth, it might've been the 13th gate. And uh, I was able to recover from that. And but this was I coming onto the was, flats, right? So this was right a, a flatter type section. Was, you had a big pitch, yeah, and then onto the flatter section. Yeah. yeah. So there Where was you lose that a lot big, of speed. Uh huh. Well, no. So it was right before Russian trampoline. So big pitch to a rolling kind of flat section. I I slid out right before a Russian trampoline and another right. pitch. So 
Right. So at the um, end of the flat, I lost okay. a lot yeah. of speed. Yeah. End of the flat. So I, I ended up getting back on course. I got clocked going 70 miles per hour on that steep pitch, which I just let it go at that point. I knew I had to make a, a lot of time and I was more or less out of control. I was, I couldn't even see the gates when I was passing them. That's why you memorize a downhill. And I crossed that line and I only lost the gold by a 10th of a second. So I made up almost all of that time just nuking. And honestly, I was so proud of that silver medal. I felt like I won the silver. I never thought you could feel like you won a silver. You always <laughs> feel like you lost the gold. But like after that mistake, I thought I was really, I was okay with it. I, I thought, you know what, that could have been a lot worse. And then the next day, the Super G day, turned out a lot worse. <laughs> I, I ended up skiing the, the top section pretty well. Um, I made another mistake where I slid out on my bucket, but I overcorrected and I ended up falling directly on my chin, just face first into the snow, knocked myself out, just straight knocked myself out. It wasn't, it was the direct impact, I think, to my chin that, that really did it. And, um, took a helicopter ride to the Russian hospital and got stitched up. I had about six stitches in my chin um, with a pretty sizable concussion. And yeah, that was. End of your games it was, there. Yeah. That was, well, you know, it wasn't the end of my games, but I, I did go back for the GS, but I didn't perform very well. It was right. about four it's days really later. Yeah. yeah. Hard with yeah. a concussion. So, that's a, that's one yeah. of those that probably shouldn't yeah. have really <laughs> Yeah, I mean I I GS. I gave it some serious thought and I passed the concussion test. Okay. Well, if you pass the test, so. you pass the test and yeah. that's the way yeah. it goes. So So yeah. w was that the end of of your skiing career? You ended up you ended up continuing to ski for a little bit though, didn't you after that or I did I actually after Sochi I was pretty pretty convinced that it was time for me to hang up my skis. Um, I had a sponsor at the time, the Hilton, that, um, that offered to fly me and my family anywhere we wanted to go after the Sochi games. And uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but my, I was raised by my grandparents. And so naturally my first thought was, where does my grandma want to go? Wherever she right. says we're going, we're going. So she wanted to head out to Hawaii to see the Pearl Harbor Museum. And that's pretty good for me. I said, for <laughs> sure, let's go to Hawaii. So we flew out there after the Sochi games. And um, that's kind of when things changed for me as far as my athletic aspirations, because I happened upon another program called Access Surf. Uh, a friend of mine told me about it. And that program takes people with disabilities surfing. Uh, the program wasn't actually running when I was there, but I contacted the woman that runs it and she went out of her way to get me in the ocean on this thing called a wave ski that I didn't know anything about. And she pushed me into my first wave. I have a kayak paddle in my hand. I'm strapped to this board and it ruined me. I <laughs> caught this wave and I didn't want to do anything else. I knew I wanted to do that from there on out. And um, 
while we were out there that day, she actually told me about a competition that they hold every year called Duke's Fest. And it's an adaptive surfing competition. And she said, I should come back in August um, and compete. And I, <laughs> I obviously just caught my first wave. So I didn't really have any aspirations for winning or, you know, being. Hold on a second. You also had yeah. lunch with Eric Peterson and told him that you were going to make the 2010 yeah. games in two years. So, so, so we'll take that with a grain of salt, I guess, that, that you didn't have yeah, any aspirations of winning. Like I definitely, you know, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go and win this thing. Uh, but I definitely wanted to be a part of it. And so I went back in August and it opened up this whole new world that I had no idea was even happening. There were all of these people from around the world. Everybody with a disability had figured out how to surf. And it was like the most awe-inspiring because adaptive surfing isn't like a structured thing at this point. Like if you were somebody with a disability living in Chile or Argentina or Australia or New Zealand, you're just out there by yourself crawling through the sand with some buddies or something like figuring it out. There isn't like a national governing body that like has equipment, you know, and or a so program I, that you I, can really go to program, where they right. can say, Oh, well, this is how we do it. Like, you know, like skiing, right. they can say, we have a tether mm -hmm. that we can, we can help you stay under control and right. upright. This is like, go and get in the, in the ocean and ocean's kind yeah, of powerful. Figure it out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> kind really of powerful. powerful. Yeah. Really powerful. We're the worst swimmers out there and we're disabled. <laughs> so yeah, all of these really amazing people are all together at this really beautiful beach, Waikiki, surfing this like iconic break called Queens. And it was really the kind of the, the light that I needed at the time. I mean, I was pretty broken after Sochi. I just felt so defeated. I felt like I didn't know what I was really doing anymore because it hurt me it physically hurt me but you know there was just I was so frustrated with my athletic career and then I came across all of these amazing people that were you know how surfers are they're like so fun and positive and light and happy and like whatever you know they're just having fun and it wasn't so serious and ski racing can be so serious and uh I just got out in the water and just had so much fun. And so I say it ruined me because I, I literally had to change my whole life situation. I moved from Colorado out to California um, to surf. <laughs> and also I thought, you know. And was it just the fun or what was the, what was the issue? Did it, did it just, did it speak to you personally or what's the, why, How, why did it happen? Yeah. You know, a lot of surfers would, say it's kind of cliche but it's it's kind of spiritual it's a spiritual experience out on the water you're so small in this huge ocean and this wave like no other wave comes to you and you catch it and there's no other place you want to be there's nothing else to think about and you're on the surface of the water and you're surfing it and it's moving you and you're moving with it and it's it's so special every time you catch a wave and you get to do it over and over again. So it's like, you just, you want more of it all the time. And you know, the ocean's always changing and there's never, 
another wave like the one you had before. So there's, there's this mysterious, you know, unknowingness about it that just makes you want to experience it more. Um, also, like I said before, it's not so serious. You get, right. and I did, I did end up competing and surfing, but that was just more because I love the structure and the focus that competition and performance brings. But really, surfing was something that I forgot about. That feeling is something that I forgot about since before when I was a snowboarder. That freedom uh, okay. of creating and moving freely throughout the mountain. And I think I had just gotten so structured and focused on performance that I forgot to have fun and surfing brought that back into my life. The tenths of a second mean so much, whereas right. this is you in the moment. You're achieving the moment. It's a spiritual, artistic kind of thing where it really doesn't matter. I mean, right. other than other than that, you're to having you. a good time. It matters right. to you. Yeah, exactly. But then you came back and you went to to California and you started racing kayaks on the flat water. Right. Like, <laughs> not not surfing. <laughs> Turned out to be one of the hardest things I've ever embarked upon. It. So my thought was, you know, nobody's really done three sports, or they have. I haven't, and you know, one of the things that's always driven me is I wanted to see if I could do it. I didn't know if I could do it, and that was enough for me to want to do it. I didn't know if I could be competitive. I really had never done an endurance sport up until mm -hmm. that time, but also one of the things that really kind of drove me to do it was I wanted to become a really proficient paddler, and in adaptive surfing, as far as competitions are, there wasn't a women's division to begin with. So me and like one other girl are competing against all the guys. So I knew I had to be one of the strongest paddlers out there in order to compete with the guys. So my whole plan was, you know, I'm going to give it everything I have for two years, try to make it to the 2016 games in Rio in sprint kayak and uh, also surf and, and just paddle my brains out. And that's exactly what I did. I, it was on the water every morning at 6 a.m. and every evening at 4 p.m. just paddling and it never I you know I hear runners and endurance athletes talk about that kind of that runner's high when you finally hit that you know stride and it gets easier it never got easier for me <laughs> I just struggled the whole time what were your and distances honestly, uh, we just raced the 200 200 so, meters on the on the water on flat water so that was yeah, the only yeah. event for sprint kayak uh for paras at least but i mean when i was training we were doing 400 600 a thousand right. we we more or less trained endurance and long distance so that we had that you know baseline conditioning for a 200 meter sprint and how did it it's, work out you know it I was not very successful by, by uh, some standards. I finished seventh at the Paralympics. Um, but by my standards, I finished. And I celebrated when I finished seventh, like I won that race because the amount of work that I did to get there, uh, it was deserving. I mean, I, I gave it everything I could. One of the hardest parts for me was 
and I'm not blaming classifications on this, but I was put into a classification with single leg amputees. Because I'm such a low para, I have all this function in my core, but in sprint kayak, I was competing against um, other women that had a working leg to push off of. Right. And so I was really, I mean, it was just difficult. I, I couldn't beat them, but that was also another mental challenge for me to overcome. I mean, some things are out of your hands, but that shouldn't be any excuse for you to not give everything you have to what you're doing. And, and sometimes was, those are the biggest victories are the times right. when you know, you don't have a chance of winning, but you still put forth your greatest effort. Right. That's and exactly you were also right. prepared for, for surfing now. So right. <laughs> I was still winning. In my yeah, you didn't world. get a medal, but <laughs> you got this fitness and this ability that you would not have necessarily had. And, and so now you surf, I mean, you, you've won surf competitions. There are, there is a women's competition now, right? Yes, there is. Yeah. We, we've come a long way since, I guess that was 2014. Um, we now are an established organization through the International Surf Association. Uh, we have adaptive surfing um, and six categories for uh, six different types of disabilities. Um, my division is called the wave ski division and that's where you sit on top of a surfboard you strap in and use a kayak paddle to propel yourself onto the wave um, also in the divisions uh, so there's there's a as adaptive surfing one through six so as one um and i'm not going to get these all right but um it goes from laying down prone for quadriplegics and folks that prefer to surf that way. They, they can also be paras, um, to a single leg, double leg amputee in the kneeling division to then the sitting division, which is AS3. And then the lower limb amputees that prefer to stand on the board, mm -hmm. uh, with a prosthetic or without, and then also upper limb division and the visually impaired division. So wow. it's come a long way. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we're checking all the boxes to hopefully include it in the 2028 games. That was, that's what I heard. That's, that sounds super exciting because the, the, it, the Olympics surfing is getting into the Olympics prior to that. Right. So is right. That, well, it was due to be uh, in, showcased at the 2020 games right? this summer, which then got moved to 2021 and they will still include it there. Um, and we, narrowly miss the 2024 games in Paris. Uh, we have to have a certain amount of countries competing right, and sure. also gender equity with that. And so we just need more numbers. So anybody listening that wants to surf that has a disability, hit me up. Okay. <laughs> Let well, me know. Yeah. I'm super excited about it. I don't know that I'm going to be a competitor, yeah. but I'd love to do it. It just looks yes. super, super cool. It's and amazing. And, and yeah. yeah, and, and I've got to ask you later on if I can, if I could actually even do the sit on top, because I am a higher level injury yes. than you are. I do not have the balance that you do. And I looked at some of your videos and I went, I would go completely out the back of that as soon as I got yeah. started, because there's nothing to rest your back on. I mean, you're just, you're sitting in a little divot, yeah. basically. Yeah, I do have some uh, higher level injury friends that have figured it out, so. All right. Good news, All right. Chris. Good news. I yeah. want to find out about this because some of this is, 
how do we enjoy our vacations more? You know, it's like, yes, you don't want to yeah. just sit on the beach or like hang out or, you know, it's like, well, let's go do something. Let's have fun. Yep. And, and that looks super fun. Okay. Last question. We'll, well, last, last part, we'll get you out of here. Uh, but is, you know, there are times that I have something on my lap and I'm going up the ramp in my house and it's amazing how I can go from feeling like I'm relatively strong to completely ineffectual, just completely weak. Right. What is it like to be pregnant in a wheelchair? <laughs> the struggle is real, Chris. <laughs> I can only imagine. Uh, yeah, it was, it was difficult. It was really difficult. I, uh, you know, towards the end of my pregnancy, if I dropped something, it was just dead to me. I was like, well, I'm not getting that. It's gone. Um, transferring got a lot more difficult. I did put on about 40 pounds. So 40 just pounds. moving my body was really hard. Um, transferring, I remember the day before I was induced, the day of, I was transferring out of the shower and fell and I just couldn't get back up. You know, I needed help. And uh, yeah, it was really difficult. I just, I, I actually am hoping to do it one more time, but um, not many more times after that, not any more times after that. Um, Assuming the baby, you know, not the getting out of the shower thing. Right. Yeah. yeah that, yeah. that thing. Yeah. But um, you know, what's really cool now is my little boy Gunner is He's actually 11 months old. He just started walking yesterday. That's not uh, the cool part, but that is the okay, cool part. But that is cool. Like he, that's really cool because um, it's so instinctual because he's obviously not learning it from me. <laughs> but he, uh, he can sit on my lap and he has adapted so well to all of my own movements. So I will lean over and he'll lean the opposite way to balance out or he'll push out his feet off of my chair if he's starting to tip. And uh, he crawls right up to my chair and grabs onto it. He'll push me around the house. And I just think it's so amazing to watch him kind of adapt with me. That it's all he's ever known. And it just, mm -hmm. it makes sense on an intuitive level. Right. It's... So did, did you always want to be a mother? Did you know that you wanted to do that? You did. Yeah. I Well, I was always low-key hoping for it, but I didn't want to get my hopes up in case it didn't happen kind of thing. I, I really did always want to be a mom. I just, I, I always said that it would be an honor and if that's in the plan for me. But I certainly wasn't one of those moms that was so headstrong about it that I would do it as a single mom or adopt or whatever that looked like. Um, you wanted to be in the right you know, position to make it happen right. and, and grow. And, yeah. and was some of that, because obviously, I mean, you lost your brother, but you lost your father mm -hmm. as well when you were nine mm -hmm. months old, right? So, right. so and, and were raised by your grandparents and I'm sure loving grandparents, but was there always that feeling of, I want to, I want to build a family of my own. I want to build something that really is what I consider, consider family. Yeah, well, yes, it was that, but I've I've really become so close with my sisters through our experiences of losing yeah. really close family members. And so I didn't ever really feel like I, I was lacking family. Okay. Good. But yeah. I, de I did really 
I did really feel like I wanted to have the experience of being a mom. And um, my mom, you know, she didn't raise me, but I do feel like I wanted to kind of have my own experience as a mother um, outside of my experience with my mom and, and just kind of reinvent that for myself in a way that I wanted to do it. And uh, it's been a true honor. I mean, it is the hardest thing. I talked about sprint kayak being hard. <laughs> the craziest thing about being a mom is the sleep deprivation. There's nothing like it when you're required to be so vigilant and present and you have not slept. It's like you have to dig deep. It's a, you're it's never a really done. challenging. You're never done. It's never an option. You're always on. Do you find that's one of the transitions? So, so for me, like you, I was always a, I was always a sprinter. I mean, I raced, I did some marathons and things like that, but I was never really very good at it, but I never did a meaningful international competition that lasted longer than two minutes. And you know where the finish line is. You know that you get a chance to (laughs) stop. You can see the finish line Uh where it seems like life is not necessarily a sprint, right? It's, and, and, and this is the lesson that we've probably been needing to get as we've moved along is this sense of mm-hmm. like, no, there really isn't a finish line. You need to keep going and you need to figure out. And I would imagine that's exactly what you're learning right now and, and thinking, uh, well, you've got one. And then, and then if, if you potentially go to two, what does that mean? Yeah. That, sounds, that sounds even more challenging. Well, that's when you have to break down. Because if you look at an Olympic cycle as four years, and if you try to digest that four years in one set sitting, you know, what's that saying? You don't eat an elephant in one bite. Right. <laughs> you know, so you, I, as a ski racer, I always used to tell myself I could do anything for a minute or a minute and a half or two minutes. I can do anything for two minutes. And now as a mom, I'm like, I can do anything, you know, until nap time. I can do anything for three hours or two hours, you know, on days when I'm particularly exhausted, I, I have and to hope, really break it down. And, and hope, hope that it doesn't change. Hope for the right? nap. Like, yeah. okay, okay, I can get to nap time. Like, oh, you're not going down today. Come on, come on, kid. Come oh God, it's so break. devastating. It's heartbreaking when he doesn't nap. It's like literally devastating. Well, because there are repercussions as well, right? So it's just, you you don't They're get cranky, that break. Yeah. And then he's, yeah, he's cranky forever. And wow. Well, so, yeah. so, so you have, you have your hands full with, you know, with the Women's Sports Foundation, with surfing still, with, with Gunner, uh, with Roy, with, with uh, the High Fives Foundation. Uh, I mean, it's so, so <laughs> So, so is is there is there a what's next kind of thing or or is, is right now what's next? Yeah, I was just chatting with a friend about it um, career wise, and you know I've done a fair amount of public speaking and was really on the circuit prior to the to the to the pandemic. Just kind of imagining the future. It really is. I think for me right now is just being here right now. I can't, I can't predict anything. I don't know what it's going to look like and I don't know how to plan for it. So being present with Gunner and, you know, controlling the controllables is all I can do and just see how that plays out. And, you know, really one thing that's helped me a lot is, is my gratitude work. 
waking mm-hmm. up every morning at 5.30 with Gunner so early and just physically saying out loud what I'm grateful for because, you know, things can get so stagnant and, and monotonous as a new mom and being stuck at home and not traveling. We traveled so much before the pandemic. Um, it kept everything so lively and fun and it, and, you know, so it's just really, it's boiled everything down to the basics and, and focusing on gratitude's really helped me through it. But it's also, it's gotta be kind of nice. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing, right? I think I flew a couple hundred thousand miles last year and I've not been on a plane since the second week in March or whatever it was and mm-hmm. might not be on a plane throughout the rest of the year. Who knows? Right. I mean, this is, the, which is totally unusual and same for my wife. And it's kind of wild to have a routine at home where mm-hmm. you can sort of get to bed so at, predictable. A, at, a, right. at, a, at a similar hour each night and wake up at the same time. And, and these kinds of things, I mean, there's something that's, that's sort of, that's really healthy about that. But that's also, and I don't know for you if it's the conflict, but for me, having been an athlete as well, it was, I went to work when I got on a plane. Mm-hmm. Not that I wasn't working every day, mm-hmm. but this was, this was the time when it, when it mattered, when I got to prove the work that I'd done at, in training. Right. And, and, and as an athlete, I felt like I needed that. I needed that kind of feedback to say, yeah, you're, you're going in the right direction. You're doing the right things. But then, mm-hmm. but then now not, not getting on an airplane, it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit different where you feel like you're not quite going to work in the same way that you were. Do you, do you feel that same way? And if so, how are you, how are you filling that void? I don't know that you need to right. fill any voids right now because you, you, you're you on the, on the yeah. relatively busy side as it is. Yeah, that's, I really like how you explain that because that type of feedback is like, you are on the right path and, and you're validated because of, you know, your performance to some degree. And um, it, I think everybody needs a purpose, right? Everybody needs something to wake up for and work to do. And I don't necessarily have that. And I've really had to shift my focus to being the best mom I can be right now. Um, Which is a, a great of, job to have, by the it's way. It's a great I mean, job. That's, that's a spectacular job and amazing and, and really hard. Thank you. Yeah. It is really hard. And you know what? It's not always going to be so simple. We're going to get back to planes and things may get complicated and juggling. And so I've, I've really kind of reveled in this, this peace and quiet and, and the routine and Gunner knows when to sleep and when to wake up. And we're just, you know, I, it's really a, a shift in the mind, I think, um, at least for me to, to be grateful for this time. It, d- it wasn't always that easy. I was definitely feeling pretty uneasy at the beginning and missing my family and everything else. But I'm kind of settled in and you know, this is kind of how it used to be back in the day, right? People just, you stay at home and you, you're with your family yeah. and you know, every, every now and again you go out to eat and that's like the event. You're not like out to eat and going other places and you know, it's a simple time. It, it is. It is. I think for me, it's so different than, than the way that I grew up. We, we woke up in the same place most 
all the time. And, and exactly what you say, where you probably experience that same thing where you wake up somewhere and you go, where am I? What room am I in? <laughs> yeah. You get the, what room am I in? But the scariest one for me is when I woke yeah. up and I looked out the window and went, oh no, where am I? And that's when I was at home. Oh, and that's <laughs> that never really happened scary. to me. I've had that happen multiple times. It's not, it's not as many as five, but it's close. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's when you, when you think, wow, I, I usually have that bottle of water right there. Why do I have a glass? This is weird. And it's like, because you're at yeah. home, you know? And so it's, it, it is, it is a gift. And sometimes we don't realize what the gifts are. We don't recognize them as much until, until they're passed, until we look back on it and go, wow, that was really an amazing opportunity for me to be able mm -hmm. to change some things. So, well, thanks so much. I do look forward. And, and as I mentioned before, we are, we are doing a television show and I'd love to do a surfing show with you. And I want to learn how to surf and actually want to get out and do some kayaking and stuff. I'm, I'm living on a, on, I, I'm 30 feet from the water on a lake right now so awesome. and i have not and i've been here for three years and i have not touched the water yet uh so get out there <laughs> so i need to do some of this stuff so yeah. i'm going to hit you up on the on the kayaking and surfing please side do yeah i can help you i'd love to do that it looks so Look cool to well yeah. thank you so much for joining us and thanks you're for welcome. everything you're doing for so many people and for being you know probably the most in, important job is uh you know being being a great mom so keep it up and thanks. <laughs> thank you, Chris. No, thank you for having me. It was an honor. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. It.